morning. Stake out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8. The last time we were in the book of 2 Samuel, well, that was a year and a half ago, over a year and a half ago, November of 2021. Uh, That's a long time ago. Uh, Some of you weren't even here yet, even those of us who were. Surely we'd benefit from a little bit of a recap here. And so let me just start by spending a few minutes just kind of making, we're all on the, making sure that we're all on the same page with regards to the key events of First and Second Samuel that uh, lead up to this chapter. And now this recap is certainly no substitute for actually reading the chapters. And so uh, if you've never read the books of First and Second Samuel or it's, been a long time since you've read the books of First and Second Samuel. I highly recommend that you do so uh, even this week, that you might be well prepared for our study in the months to come. So First Samuel begins with a rather unspectacular opening, uh, yet another scriptural example of God using what is low and despised in the world. And so the book of First Samuel begins with a certain man basically a a nobody, a guy named Elkanah. Uh, This Elkanah and his once barren wife, Hannah, uh, God would grant to them a child, a boy named Samuel, who they dedicated to serve the Lord all his days. Uh, Samuel grows up in what were some really dark days for Israel, uh, days that would have overlapped with some of the book of Judges chronologically, and Uh, The darkness of those days is exemplified by this priest Eli and his sons, his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. But it wasn't just restricted to them. It was the the nation at large which was disobedient to God. And this disobedience leads to the capture of the Ark of the Covenant by the enemy Philistines at one point. And so it's a really dark time in Israel's history. But even in that environment... Samuel grows up to be a godly man who loves the Lord. And eventually he becomes a judge who leads the people of Israel well, not just politically, but also spiritually. But Samuel grows older and the people are wondering, all right, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do when uh, you leave? And so they demand a king. Give us a king that we might be like all the other nations. Now Samuel sees that request for what it is. It's the people, in essence, rejecting God as their king and demanding a human one. But God says to Samuel, well, give the people what they want. And so Samuel anoints a man named Saul to be this first king of Israel. Now Saul is a tall, handsome man who just, he looks the part, right? He just looks like a king. But after he gets off to a strong start, he defeats the Ammonites. Well, he begins to show his true colors. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, he disobeys Samuel's command to wait for him, and he presumptively goes ahead and makes a sacrifice on his own. And then in 1 Samuel 15, he disobeys God's clear command to utterly destroy the Amalekites, He spares the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen and even keeps their king as a prisoner of war. 
And because of that kingship, sorry, because of that sin, rather, that disobedience, Saul loses the kingship. Now you might remember that scene when Samuel is confronting Saul and Samuel is turning to walk away and Saul grabs the, the edge of Samuel's robe. It, it tears in his hand. And Samuel says, So the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Well, that neighbor better than you is a shepherd boy named David. So small and so insignificant, even in his own family, right? He's the youngest of eight boys, that he's not even considered when Samuel comes to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be the next king. But it's this David who God chooses to anoint as the next king of Israel. Now, the next few chapters in 1 Samuel kind of chronicle David's rise within Saul's kingdom. Uh, first, he's Saul's court musician. Then he is the representative warrior who goes out and defeats Goliath. Then he's a military leader in the ranks of Israel's army. David is wildly successful in everything that he does. And the text of 1 Samuel reminds us of why that's the case. It's because the Lord was with David. But this leads to Saul feeling threatened, feeling jealous especially when he hears the people at large praising and, and loving David. What more can he have but the kingdom? And so the next section of 1 Samuel is basically Saul trying to kill David from chapter 19 all the way through the end of 1 Samuel. And it's almost like the old cartoons, if you're familiar with like Elmer Fudd trying to catch Bugs Bunny Right? He just comes close so many times, over and over. He is so close, but he just can't seem to seal the deal. And that, of course, is because the Lord is protecting David. And there's some great stories in there from the time that David's a fugitive. You've got Saul's son, Jonathan, being a great help to David. You've got David feigning insanity to get out of one jam. Uh, you've got David meeting his wife, Abigail. She spares him from potential disaster. He even joins up with the enemy Philistines for a season. Lots of really fascinating stories that you can go back and read on your own. But one of the persistent themes in those chapters that we see over and over is just David's steadfastness and his faithfulness. Like he knows that God has anointed him to be the next king, but he's just not interested in taking matters into his own hands. He's got multiple opportunities to kill Saul, uh, take the crown by force. But he doesn't, in large part because he has high regard for the fact that it's God who anointed Saul to be king in the first place. I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. But what David refuses to do, uh, kill King Saul, the Philistines certainly have no problem with and so one day when the Israelites and the Philistines are at war, King Saul is killed in the battle. Technically, he falls upon his own sword after being severely wounded. Saul, Jonathan his son, and two other of his sons, they all die that day. That's how the book of 1 Samuel ends. And so you begin the book of 2 Samuel and you're thinking, well, the path to the kingship is finally clear for David. 
but not so fast. Because Abner, Abner was the general, the commander of Saul's army. Abner takes Saul's other son, Ishbosheth, and he makes him king over Israel. And so at this point, you've got the tribe of Judah, that's David's tribe. Uh, they recognize David as their king, but the other 11 tribes, they are under Ishbosheth's rule. But after some fighting between Ishbosheth's side and David's side, well, David's side is winning. David's side is growing stronger and stronger. Uh, General Abner perhaps sees the handwriting on the wall, and there's also some personal beef between him and Ishbosheth. And so Abner, he basically does his, his best Kevin Durant impression here, and he just hops onto the winning team. He goes and he joins King David. But the story takes another twist. Because Joab, so Joab is David's military commander. Joab goes and kills Abner, even though Abner has now defected to David's side, uh, in part as revenge for Abner killing Joab's brother, and in part because Joab saw Abner as a threat to his own position in David's kingdom. So maybe that was a little bit confusing, a lot of names there. But the bottom line is that Saul is gone. Most of Saul's sons are gone, and now General Abner is gone. And so the only thing that stands between David and ruling all of Israel is this one guy, Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth is assassinated by his own officers. So finally, 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 probably around 22 years after Samuel anointed him in 1 Samuel chapter 16, now Finally, David becomes king over all Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now firmly entrenched as king, David takes the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And that's really important, not just because Jerusalem is going to become the political capital of the nation, but of course because it's also going to become its spiritual center. And since it's the new spiritual center of the nation, David brings the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence with his people. He brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And it's as David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's as David expresses his desire to build a permanent home for the Ark in Jerusalem. Like he wants to build a temple. Well, God says no. You're not going to be the one who's going to build the temple. But God does make a great covenant with him with some astounding promises of blessing. Now look along as I read some of what God says to David in this covenant. I'll be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 8 through 16. And I want you to listen carefully, not just because these are some of the most important ideas in redemptive history, but also because it's going to lead right into the chapter that we're covering this morning. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. 
and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of these promises, of course, is found in the son of David, uh, many generations down the line, right, the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever, right? That's referring to Jesus. But there's also a nearer partial fulfillment in Solomon, David's son. Uh, he shall build a house for my name. Uh, that's referring to Solomon building that temple that David wanted to build in Solomon's lifetime. But there's an even more immediate fulfillment of a lot of what's said there. Like, look at verses 9 through 11. Like, in the reign of David, in terms of God cutting off their enemies, planting the Israelites in the land so that their enemies would disturb and afflict them no more, I will give you rest from your enemies. Right? Those promises find some immediate fulfillment in the reign of David, particularly as chronicled in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And so all of that now brings us to our chapter for this morning. And so let me start by just reading the chapter in its entirety. 2 Samuel chapter 8, this is the word that God has for you this morning. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated, the Moab, he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them into Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi. 
And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. Father, we don't want to go about what we are about to do in our own strength or our own wisdom lest this become merely a transference of historical facts. We ask that you would use your word to change our hearts, to shape us, to bring us to repentance, to make us strive harder after you. That's something that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. And so we pray that you would soften our hearts and show us your glory through this text. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have three points for you as we go through this chapter. Uh, Like, what is 2 Samuel chapter 8 all about? Uh, Point number one, if you're taking notes, is rest. Point number one is rest. 2 Samuel chapter 8 is about rest. What we have here in this chapter, we just read it, it's essentially a summary of David's military successes. And they're all connected by one Hebrew root word, it's a word that's translated in our English Bibles as defeated and struck down. So look at verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines. Verse 2, and he defeated Moab. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadad-Ezer. Verse 5, and when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down And that's the same word, 22,000 men of the Syrians. Verse 13, David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down, there it is again, 18,000 Edomites. And so military victories, defeating and striking down, that's kind of the connecting theme here. But we should also notice that this isn't just like a random catalog of David's military successes. Or even a chronological one, like first he fought against them, and then he fought against them, and then he fought against them. Rather, I think the author is trying to make a larger point, and it's a point that we, who live very far from the Middle East, 3,000 years after these events occurred, uh, we might easily miss, but it's a point that an astute reader living in that land, living in that day, would probably have caught on to. You see, geographically, if you were to look at a map of the various kingdoms that existed during David's day, well, you would see that the Philistines, verse 1, are to the west of the Israelites. The Moabites, there in verse 2, they are to the east of the Israelites. 
The Syrians, they're covered in verses 3 through 8, they're to the north of the Israelites. And the Edomites, verses 13 and 14, you can probably guess, are to the south of the Israelites. And so as the chapter describes David's victories in the west and in the east and in the north and in the south, the point that 2 Samuel chapter 8 is making is that God gave victory to David over all of Israel's surrounding enemies. Thus fulfilling his promise, remember 2 Samuel chapter 7, look at it again, 2 Samuel 7 verses 10 to 11, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men will afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And here it is, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Rest from all your enemies, all as in west, east, north, and south. Point number one, Rest. God is giving David and Israel rest from all their enemies through these military victories. Let's take a look at these victories just one at a time here. We can start in the West. We've got the Philistines in verse 1. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, then you're familiar with the Philistines. You know them. Going back to the book of Judges, they've been like the perennial enemies of the Israelites. You remember Samson, his famous battles against the Philistines uh, in the days of Eli the priest, at the beginning of 1 Samuel. It's the Philistines who defeat the Israelites and capture the Ark of the Covenant in some of Israel's darkest days. And in the days of King Saul, well, of course, we remember David defeating the Philistine giant Goliath, the great victory there. But it's not just that one battle. King Saul pretty much battles the Philistines throughout his reign as king. His battles against the Philistines are recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 13, 14, 17, 18, 19, 23, 28, 29, and 31. That's nine of the 21 chapters that chronicle Saul's reign. And then it's chapter 31 that the Philistines ultimately kill Saul. And so for generations and generations, right, the Philistines have been this constant thorn in Israel's flesh. They're right up there with like Darth Vader and Voldemort and the Joker, like worthy arch enemies. But David, verse 1, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. It's kind of an understatement, right? It's It's like an underwhelming end to this movie given how long these two nations have been at war with one another, like, that's it? You'd be upset if the bad guy in your favorite movie was vanquished that unceremoniously. But that's the last we hear of the Philistines for a really long time. Like, after David's reign, we're not going to hear about the Philistines again, like Israel having to fight off the Philistines, until the days of King Hezekiah. That is hundreds of years later. That shows just how complete this victory was. And the author includes a detail here that he takes from them Methagama, probably refers to their capital city of Gath. Again, just illustrating how this was a complete victory over the Philistines. So that's to the west. To the west, we have victory over the Philistines. Now let's cross over and let's think about the east The Moabites to the east. The Moabites are 
actually related to the people of Israel. Uh, They are descended from Lot, and you'll know that Lot is Abraham's nephew. And so they're family, but you'll remember that Balak, uh, king of Moab, uh, he was the one who, in the book of Numbers, he tries to hire Balaam to curse the Israelites unsuccessfully. And it was the Moabites who led the Israelites into Baal worship at Peor. That's also written for us in the book of Numbers. And it was the Moabites who conquered parts of Israel during the reign of King Eglon in the book of Judges. And so the Moabites, not unlike the Philistines, the Moabites have been Israel's enemies for a long time, but they too are defeated by David. And we should pause and admit that it's a bit surprising that David fights with the Moabites. Because, well, you'll remember that David's ancestor, Ruth, was a Moabite. But also because back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, when David is on the run from King Saul, uh, to whom does he entrust his parents? Care for my parents. It's the king of Moab. And so we're ultimately not told, like, why they went to war. But the end result is the same. David defeats the Moabites. Now, the process of defeating them, uh, he institutes this somewhat strange practice of justice and mercy, right? He basically puts to death two-thirds of the Moabites and he spares one-third. But even more importantly, we should note that by defeating the Moabites, David fulfills one of Balaam's prophecies, a prophecy that Balaam made all the way back in the book of Numbers when he was supposed to be cursing the Israelites, but you'll remember he could only say what God allowed him to say, and that includes this prophecy from Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. David here crushes the forehead of his enemies to the east, the Moabites. Now from the east, we turn our attention now to the north. That's where the Syrians were. There would have been two centers of power for the Syrians back in that day, one in the city of Zobah and the other in the city of Damascus. Uh, Starting with Zobah, uh, the king there is a guy named Hadad-Ezer. We can figure out what that name means because Eli-Ezer means God is my help. And so Hadad-Ezer means Hadad, as in the Canaanite storm god, Hadad is my help. But Hadad really isn't much help at all, especially compared to the help that God was for David, because David resoundingly defeats him, resoundingly defeats the Syrians at Zobah. And then when the Syrians of Damascus come to help the Syrians of Zobah, well, they're not much more help than Hadad was, right? David defeats them all, and all the Syrians become his servants. Now that leads to this little addendum to the northern campaign. Look at verses 9 and 10, uh, involving this king of Hamath named Toy. Uh, Hamath was about 100 miles north of Damascus, and basically Toy's been fighting against Hadad-Ezer for a very long time, and so uh, when he hears that David's defeated Hadad-Ezer, he's, he's really happy. It's kind of like how I feel about the Yankees, right, as a Mets fan. Uh, whoever beats the Yankees is my friend in the same way whoever beats Hadad-Ezer is Toy's friend. So Toy has his son Joram go to David to thank him, bring him gifts of silver and gold and bronze. And so that's the Syrians and Toy, king of Hamath, 
up in the north. So West Philistines, East Moabites, North Syrians. Now we're heading to the south. Look down at verses 13 and 14. And there we see David defeating the Edomites. Now the Edomites are descendants of Esau. Esau is Israel's brother. And so, again, like the Moabites, this is family. These are cousins. But even though they're related, they have this history of conflict with the Israelites. And most famously, when they would not let the Israelites pass through their land during the Exodus. And so David battles them. And he strikes down 18,000 of them in the Valley of Salt. That would have been a region by the Dead Sea. And so that is the Edomites to the south. But again, let's not get lost in the details here. Take a step back. Look at the chapter as a whole. You've got David conquering all of those around him. West and east and north and south. And all of that is at least in part a fulfillment of the promises of 2 Samuel about giving Israel rest from all of their enemies. Point number one, rest. Well, that brings us to our second point. You'll notice a repeated theme in this chapter, and that is the riches that Israel gains as a result of all these military victories. And so point number two for us is riches. Look at the end of verse two. The Moabites became servants to David, and they brought tribute, riches. Verse six. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants of David and brought tribute. Verses 7 and 8. David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, David took very much bronze. Again, riches. And verse 10. You remember Toy and his son Joram? Well, they too bring riches. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. Now, here's the question that we're left with. After all these battles and and all these riches that have been acquired from these battles, like, what is David going to do with all this gold and silver and, and bronze? Well, verse 11 gives us a clue. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. And so he's not keeping it for himself. He's not trying to make himself rich. He is dedicating it to the Lord, but to what end? Well, that brings us back to another promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7. A promise that would not be fulfilled in David's lifetime, but a promise that David helps to begin to fulfill here. And I'm referring to 2 Samuel 7:13. He shall build a house for my name. Your son Solomon is going to build a house for my name. The temple that you wanted to build, but I wouldn't allow you to build. And so, where is Solomon going to get all the riches, the gold and silver and bronze that he's going to need, the money that he's going to be that's going to be required? for him to take on such an expansive building project? Well, the answer, at least in part, is David's military conquests chronicled in this chapter. Listen to what David says many years later to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 22. Then David called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. 
David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. So David's not allowed to build a house himself, and he knows that. But instead of abandoning the plan altogether, he begins to collect the riches from all these victories and dedicates them to the Lord for the purpose of his son eventually building the temple. Verse 14 of the same chapter, 1 Chronicles 22, with great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord, the temple, 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze, and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it, timber and stone too, I have provided. And so here, right, 2 Samuel chapter 8, David is amassing riches that would go towards that building project. And 1 Chronicles 18 is even more explicit about that connection. Look at verse 8 of 1 Chronicles 18. From Tibnath and from Kun, cities of Hadadezer, David took a large amount of bronze, right, so that's the same event with the same Hadadezer as in our chapter. With it, Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the vessels of bronze in the temple. And so just like God once used the riches of pagan Egypt to build this tabernacle, so here he would use the riches of the pagan nations to build his temple. Point number two, riches. So west, east, north, south, right? David has victory everywhere. Point number one, rest. And as a result of these victories, David acquires this massive amount of wealth, wealth that's going to go towards building the future house of God. Point number two, riches. But thirdly, unless you think that David is only concerned with foreign affairs and finances, well, verse 15 tells us that he did a pretty good job of ruling his own people as well. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Now, that's an important phrase justice and equity. Elsewhere, the same Hebrew roots are translated righteousness and justice. And so David here is administering righteousness and justice to all his people. Well, you'll know that righteousness and justice are some of God's most important attributes. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are called the very foundation of God's throne. As in God is a king of righteousness and justice who rules his people in righteousness and justice. And so you see what the narrator is doing here. He's telling us that David, in his rule as Israel's king, he is like God. In a very literal way, David is a godly king because of his righteousness and justice. And so point number three, rest, riches, righteousness. But the book of 2 Samuel doesn't end in chapter 8. Even as we're told here in 2 Samuel chapter 8 of David's godly kingship, administering righteousness and justice, to all his people, well, we know what's coming in the chapters to come, don't we? When that godly king 
And his godly kingdom of righteousness and justice uh, would implode not so much from the outside because of Philistines and Moabites and Syrians and Edomites, but from the inside uh, because of the great king, the great sin rather, of its godly king. And so we should note that yes, these are glorious days for Israel. Second Samuel chapter 8 recounts glorious days for Israel, but we should also note that this is not yet the ultimate kingdom, the one that's been promised throughout the scriptures. That kingdom, that kingdom of perfect righteousness and justice, that is, at least in David's day, still to come. And the prophet Jeremiah coming hundreds of years after David, he too looked forward to that same kingdom, one of a greater David. Look at Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute, here it is, justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. That branch of David, referring of course to King Jesus, well only he, as the righteous son of God, only he could rule his people with that perfect righteousness and perfect justice. Point number three. Righteousness. So that's 2 Samuel chapter 8. It is a chapter about rest, riches, and righteousness. Rest from all their enemies, west, east, north, south, just like God promised a chapter earlier. Riches that would go to build the temple, the temple that God's, uh, David's son, rather, Solomon, would build for God. And righteousness. Uh, noteworthy, but imperfect righteousness that points forward to David's greater son, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let me close by just giving you a a few practical application points from this chapter. Uh, So given this chapter about rest, riches, and righteousness, how should we then live? Uh, How do we apply this text to our lives? How do we live differently as a result so that this is not just a, a historical lesson from Israel's kingdom. Application point number one is to see all our success as from the Lord. I think one of the dangers of going through narratives like those in 2 Samuel, uh, so something that we're going to have to guard against in the months to come, uh, is that we can read a chapter like this And we can walk away with the idea that this is primarily about exalting, like, David's awesomeness. Oh, what a a great king David was. Oh, what a great military general David was. And that's true. I mean, David was a great king, and David was a great military general. But to walk away with only that would be to miss the point entirely and the author of 2 Samuel is just not going to let us do that. Look at how twice he points out the same exact truth. As in this is the truth that drives everything in this chapter. Look at verse 6. 
and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And it's like, just in case you missed it the first time, like you were daydreaming, you weren't paying attention, look down at verse 14, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Like, don't miss this. All of David's success, all the military victories, the riches that he's able to acquire for Israel, all of it is from the Lord. And here's the thing. David himself knows this to be true. And just reading 2 Samuel chapter 8, you say, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure I see that. I believe you, but I don't really see that. Well, here's where we can turn to one of the Psalms. You'll remember how we talked last week about how the Psalms really reveal David's heart. We'll turn to Psalm 60. And I want you to turn there in your own Bibles because I want, you to sh- I want to show you something that we can't project uh, but is in your Bibles. And that's the heading of Psalm 60. The heading says, When David strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zoba, Aram is just another name for Syria, so these are the Syrians, remember Zoba. And when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom, in the Valley of Salt. Oh, that is most definitely from 2 Samuel chapter 8. Right? So the Syrians and the Edomites, this is talking about what we were talking about this morning. Now look at what David says in the last two verses of this psalm. Oh God, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. You see that? With God, we shall do valiantly. This is David writing at the time of 2 Samuel chapter 8, and he's saying, man's salvation is vain, but God will tread down our foes. In other words, application point number one, see all our success as from the Lord. Friends, it's the same thing in our Christian lives. We have to never forget that. We have to never forget that all our success is from the Lord. Whatever it is, uh, whether it's a good marriage or raising godly children, success in your ministry, uh, fruitful discipleship relationships, being a good witness at work, maintaining a consistent devotional life, ministering effectively to your brothers and sisters, preaching a good sermon, whatever it is, all our success is from the Lord. And that means we ought to be quick to give God glory and very reluctant to receive the praise of men. It means we ought to be earnest in praying for God's blessings on what we do, knowing that we're completely dependent on Him. You can do nothing apart from me. It means we ought never to look at ourselves as if we were something great. David knew this truth, that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And we similarly ought to know from where our success has come. Application point number one, see all our success as from the Lord. Application point number two, When God says no to a noble and good desire, when God says no to a noble and good desire, look for other ways to serve him. 
Remember that back in chapter 7, God basically says no to David's desire to build him a temple. That's a noble desire. It's a good desire that would eventually be fulfilled in the days of David's son Solomon. It's a desire that God himself would bless with his presence when the temple was completed. But it was simply not God's will for David to be the one to build the temple. But notice that instead of being sour about it, or growing bitter or disenchanted or discouraged that God wouldn't allow him to do it, David seeks other ways to contribute. He dedicates a huge amount of gold and silver and bronze and money that his son Solomon could use that for the temple and its artifacts. And so when God said no to David's noble and good desire, David looked for other ways to serve him. Friends, I wonder if there's ways that we in this room could apply the same principle in our own lives. God's no to a noble and good desire in our lives. But that doesn't mean that we just give up entirely. But it leads us to seek other ways to serve him towards the same end. So maybe, once upon a time, you wanted to serve the Lord as a missionary. That's a noble and good desire. But perhaps in recent days, it's become clear to you that God has just not called you to serve him in that way. Well, here then is the question. Are there other ways that he's calling you to serve him in terms of missions? Like perhaps you yourself can't go, but you can sacrificially give. Or you can commit yourself to pray. Or you can devote yourself to just staying in touch with and encouraging those who are serving on the mission field. Similarly, to give a few more possible examples, maybe God has not called you to preach and teach, but you can pray for those who do. Maybe God hasn't called you to marriage and parenting in this season of your life, but you can practically love and serve parents and children in the body. Whatever it is, the specific ways in which we might apply this are going to differ from person to person. But consider application point number two. When God says no to a noble and good desire, we have to look for other ways to serve him. Application point number three. It's better to submit to the king gladly. It's better to submit to the king gladly. We talked about this guy, Toy, earlier. He's the king of Hamath. He's the guy who, uh, through his son Joram, he brings gifts to King David after David defeats Hadad-Ezer. But these gifts, uh, we should note that these are not just like, hey, great job beating Hadad-Ezer, like, congratulations. Uh, These are gifts of submission, Hey, we too are your servants, but we don't want to fight against you. We want to gladly submit to you, David. 
Like, like we know that the Lord is on your side, that the Lord is with you. We know the inevitable outcome. If we were to oppose you, we don't want to end up like Hadadezer and the Syrians and the Edomites and the Moabites and the Philistines. No, we want to gladly submit to you while we can. And friends, that is a striking picture of something that this same David wrote about in the second psalm. Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 and following. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the sun. Now, while you can take refuge in Jesus, there is coming a day of wrath, a day of judgment for all who oppose him. But today is a day of mercy. Today is the day of salvation. And so I tell you today, application point number three, it is better to submit to the king gladly. Because one way or another, one way or another, whether it's from the depths of hell where you will pay for your sin for eternity, or from the glories of heaven where all who have trusted in Christ's death and resurrection will rejoice in his presence, one way or another, every person in this room is going to submit to the rule of King Jesus. For those who gladly submit now, like in this day of mercy, for those who repent of their sins and trust in him alone, for those who kiss the Son, well, there is a submission of glad adoration to your King. But for those in this life who refuse, well, Psalm 2 is clear, be warned, O rulers of the earth, for his wrath is quickly kindled. He is a God of righteousness and justice. And thus you will receive the just punishment for your sin that has not been paid for, which is an eternity in hell. Where you will experience submission to the power of King Jesus, but in an entirely different way. There is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And as Toy, King of Hamath, as he illustrates for us here, it's infinitely better to submit to the King gladly. Let's pray. Father, we pray that each and every person in this room would recognize the urgency, the importance of the gospel message, and that all would cry out in repentance and faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that every soul in this room would gladly submit to his kingship and that we might kiss the Son and in him find refuge. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.